0: Mark 2, 18 through 22. Uh, and, of course, we are continuing our, our slow walk through uh, the gospel according to Mark. Um, and this is our 11th Sunday in that gospel. Uh, and so when you turn there, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. See, our wonderful text this morning in Mark 2, 18 through 22 and as we listen to this we should hear these words as if jesus himself was here standing here speaking them to us these words come with the very same authority as if jesus were here speaking them to us himself let's listen with reverence and with joy to the words of our god and king now john's disciples and the pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray to you and ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight here this morning. As we meditate on these words here, we pray that you would make your chosen people joyful because of what Jesus has come to do and because of who Jesus is. Make us new in him. Make us joyful in him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You be seated. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes to sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter will meet its death. And When he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. These are... The words of the poem that we find early in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. If you've read the book, you know that uh, our initial look in Narnia early in the book shows a, a miserable place wherein it's always winter and never Christmas. The citizens of, of Narnia are under the, the cruel reign of the white witch, and they're oppressed and weighed down under her cruelty and heavy hand. And besides it's being always winter never Christmas, the Narnian citizens are are often forced into acts of deception and betrayal and deceit or else she turns them into stone statues in her palace. They scrape along making a living with little joy, little food, little freedom, little provisions. And yet when the four children burst onto the scene in Narnia, there begin to be... Murmurings throughout the forest. Some of the best news a Narnian could hear, Aslan is on the move. And that's, that's good news, of course, because wrong will be made right when Aslan comes to sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. And as the word of Aslan's nearness spreads, something interesting happens. The winter snow starts to melt all throughout Narnia. Leaves start to populate the trees. Flowers begin to to bloom in the meadows. The sounds of birds and life and vitality are, are heard throughout the forest. It is a glorious depiction of spring and things being made new. In the White Witch, she begins to observe all of this. She's angry. She's frustrated by it. And in her observance, she, she happens upon a merry feast in the woods, a merry party it's called, a, a, a quote-unquote merry party attended by a squirrel family, two satyrs, a fox and a dwarf, all seated at a table in the woods enjoying a delicious meal. And incensed by this, the white witch exclaims, what is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? She learns that all of this was a gift from Father Christmas as Aslan is making all things new, and so she turns the party into stone. And this is a picture of what is being talked about in our text this morning. In Mark's gospel, uh, he's giving us a depiction of Jesus on the move, making winter into spring, making all things new, and so it's time to celebrate, it's time to party, it's time to feast. Last week we just saw a feast, Jesus feasting with a group of tax collectors and sinners and his disciples because part of his making all things new and bringing the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven involves the forgiveness and transformation of fallen creatures like ourselves and being brought to the table to feast and celebrate with Jesus. Jesus. But as you'll remember, the the Pharisees happened upon this feast, and they were incensed, much like the white witch. In fact, we have reason to believe that it may have even been a day for fasting for the Pharisees. And yet, here's Jesus on a day that's supposed to be set aside for fasting. And Jesus is feasting with sinners and tax collectors and disciples. And so the question is asked, why aren't Jesus' followers fasting? What is the meaning of this merriment, this celebration, this feasting. This is a day for fasting. And Jesus responds by saying that the reason his disciples aren't fasting is because his coming is changing everything. And so it's not timely, it's not seasonable to fast in this moment. This is a time for celebration. And that's the big idea that we wanna explore this morning is that Jesus is coming changes everything. Jesus is coming changes everything. We're going to unpack that by looking at two broad points in verses 18 to 20. We see that Jesus came to give us joy. And then in verses 21 and 2, that Jesus came to make things new. Jesus came to give us joy and Jesus came to make things new. So first, Jesus came to give us joy. We'll look at verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the, fa- the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now, to understand why this question might be asked, we need to learn something about what's going on in the background here. Fasting was extremely important to first century Judaism. In fact, it was included in what was deemed uh, to be the three pillars of Judaism. Prayer, almsgiving... And fasting, fasting, those were the, the sort of three most important practices within Judaism in the first century. And fasting had a few particular reasons for it. For one, it was simply a way of expressing sorrow and lament, you know, similar to uh, those, uh, how those at a funeral might come wearing black. In Israel, they would don sackcloth and ashes, and they would fast as a way of mourning and lamenting. And then in connection with that, it was also a way of expressing repentance and contrition for sin. You know, sometimes what was being mourned uh, in a fast was suffering, and sometimes what was being mourned in a fast was sin as an act of contrition, whether that sin is corporate or individual. And then thirdly, fasting was also a way of, of seeking God's presence. It was a kind of Uh, additional spiritual discipline that that was practiced alongside seeking God's presence in prayer as a uh, kind of way of to uh, intensify prayer. And so with that, there were a few fasts that were commonly practiced in Israel in those days. One was was biblical, being the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was an annual day of, of sacrifice for sin that we find described in Leviticus 16. Uh, This was a day that Israel, all Israel, was called to fast and lament and mourning for their sin as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice to atone for sin. But then later came some other Jewish fasts, like the nation would fast on the anniversary of the destruction of the first temple in order to remember and mourn over what took place on that day. But then additionally, well, those were kind of uh, common fasts amongst the general population of Israel— There were also um, renewal movements that would kind of uh, pop up amongst the people of Israel from time to time. Renewal movements in Judaism were seen as like uh, movements of people that were seeking to bring reformation to Israel, to Judaism. uh, Trying to bring vitality and life back into uh, the, the religion of Judaism in Israel. And the Pharisees were one such renewal movement. Uh, John the Baptist was also viewed as a kind of renewal or reform movement within Judaism. And in these renewal movements, those who belonged to these groups would often do additional kind of more regular fasts. And so the, the Pharisees, for example, would fast twice every week. They would fast on Mondays and they would fast on Thursdays. And apparently the, the disciples of John the Baptist did something very similar. But then here comes Jesus and his disciples, and initially it, it seems that people were kind of interpreting Jesus and his disciples as a kind of renewal or reform movement uh, within Judaism, that he was starting a, a, a new group that was seeking to bring religious life and vitality back to the people of Israel. And yet, oddly enough, they didn't fast like the disciples of John and the Pharisees, and in fact, They seemed to feast a lot, right? They seemed to party a lot. They seemed to have a lot of celebratory meals. And so it makes one wonder, why is that? What's the deal with this new renewal group? Why are they different than the others? Why are are they not as serious as the, 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 uh, the disciples of the Pharisees or the disciples of John the Baptist? And so when asked this question, Jesus said to them, these remarkable words, He said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. In other words, Jesus says, it would be inappropriate for my disciples to fast because of who I am and what I came to do. Now again, some information might be helpful here to understand what Jesus is saying. That is, in, in, in Israel, in those days, like, they knew how to party. Uh, they knew, they really knew how to party. Like, at a wedding, we, we party at weddings, right? We have, like, a ceremony, and then we have a reception afterward, and there's a party, and it's joyful, it's wonderful, it's, it's, it's just a, a wonderful event. But in those days in Israel, the wedding ceremony was followed by one or two weeks of feasting and celebration and eating good food and drinking good wine and all of the guests would come to to the each day to these feasts with the bride and the groom to celebrate their new marriage and to enjoy good food and good wine and laughter and family and friendship with all those present and whenever there was a wedding all fasting was was canceled even the pharisees would declare amnesty on their twice-weekly fast for wedding celebrations. Why? Because it's unseasonable to fast during a celebration like that. After the celebration, you can return to your fasting, but during the wedding, it's untimely to fast. It's not appropriate, right? So imagine your uh, wedding. Imagine your wedding, okay? You, You may be married. You may not. You may get married in the future. I don't know, but imagine your wedding. It's this wonderful day. I mean, it's hard to be angry or grumpy or, or joyless at a wedding. These are wonderful events. These are gorgeous events, celebratory events. And imagine you go through all of this planning. You're so excited. You just can't hide it. And you're about to, to marry the one that you love. And the day comes and the entire wedding party comes to you and they say, hey, listen, we just felt led to fast today in order to mourn over some recent events. So We'll only be drinking water at the reception. We're not gonna dance or anything. Um, we're not gonna enjoy you know, good adult beverages. Uh, we're, we're not gonna eat good food. We're actually not gonna wear the, the suits and dresses you, you picked out for us. We're gonna wear sackcloth and ashes. If your wedding party came to you and said that to you, you'd be upset. You'd be upset, why? Because it's not the right time for that. This is a party. We're here to celebrate. Weddings are supposed to be some of the happiest events of our lives. We're going to feast and dance. We're going to put on our nicest digs. It's unseasonable. It's untimely. It's inappropriate to fast at such a time. Well, Jesus is saying, in the same way, because of who he is, because of his coming, because of what he came to do, it would be similarly unseasonable to fast in that moment. Why? Because the bridegroom, he's the bridegroom, and he has come for his bride, his people. And now that's, that's significant, friends, because other than Yahweh, no one in the scriptures are ever referred to as the bridegroom, the husband, the groom of God's people. Yahweh is the only one described in such a way. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, if you think it's appropriate to fast right now, you don't know who I am. I am God come to you in human flesh in order to rescue and redeem you as my beloved bride. This isn't time to seek God's presence in fasting. I'm right here. This isn't time to fast and mourn. This is time to party. This is time to celebrate. This is time to rejoice. Now, friends, don't take that as a, as a, Claim a, a full-on claim that Jesus has done away with any and all fasting, okay? Uh, he still expects us to fast. Uh, you know, he's come, uh, the bridegroom has come, the, the wedding has taken place, but, you know, we're still awaiting the consummation of the wedding at the end of the age when, when <clears throat> the, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, and, and we consummate this, this wedding in the new heavens and the new earth. But until that consummation comes, between the wedding and the consummation, we fast. That's what Jesus says in verse 20 here, that it is now appropriate to fast at times. We're to fast in, in mourning and in joyful anticipation and longing for his immediate presence at the end of the age. We're to fast in times of repentance and contrition. We're to fast as an act of seeking his presence. Jesus calls us to do this. Okay, in Matthew 6:16. 6, Jesus begins with some instructions on fasting by saying, and when you fast, meaning he expects his people to fast. We find examples of, of fasting throughout the scriptures. Christians fast and in the New Testament in places like Acts 13, when a local church is setting aside Paul and Barnabas to be sent out as missionaries. They fasted and prayed about it first, fasting in order to seek God and intensify their praying about the subject. They do the same thing in Acts 14, as they, uh, they, we see them fasting and praying as they appointed elders in their churches, and all that to say there is a time for fasting. And likewise, we also shouldn't take this passage as a call to some sort of like trite optimism and chipper kind of way of living. You now, Christianity is not a religion that calls us to deny or ignore or wink at the reality of suffering in this life. You know, and, and we're, we're, we're in a world of, of death and illness and hardship. This wedding has not been consummated yet, and so there still is sorrow in this world. In fact, in Paul, in, in 2 Corinthians 6 10, he describes God's people as sorrowful. We are a sorrowful people at times. And yet, while he describes God's people as sorrowful, he says more. He describes us as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing always rejoicing, which doesn't mean that that we don't sorrow or lament or mourn at all, but that even in the midst of sorrow, there's always a deeper joy because we know that our bridegroom has come to wed us and will come again to consummate the wedding, and so our sorrows have an expiration date. Because of this, The, the deepest stratum of the Christian life is and will always be joy, even in the midst of sorrow. And the kind of thrust of this passage should lead us to conclude that while there's a time for fasting, there's a time for feasting as well. There's a time for sorrow, but we are a people who outrejoice our sufferings and sorrow. As Christians, we are to be a people marked by joy and rejoicing and celebration. Why? Because we have some of the best news anyone could ever hear. Our God has come to live among us. He has stepped into the difficulties and sorrows of this fallen world. He stepped into our sorrows and fallenness and even stepped into our sin by taking them upon himself on the cross to atone for us. And he rose on the third day in order to usher in his new creation and to make all things new, if that's not cause to raise our glass in joy and celebration and merriment, then I don't know what is. That's the best news we could hear. Friends, Christianity is not a somber affair. Christianity is it's, it's serious, but it's not somber. In fact, Christianity is deadly serious about joy because Christianity is more wedding than funeral. Jesus is not an undertaker, he calls himself a bridegroom. Christianity is primarily about joy in Jesus and in our salvation than it is anything else. And so I think it's worth asking, friends, if our experience lines up with this this reality. Is your life, Christian, marked by such joy and rejoicing and, and merriment even in the midst of times of sorrow and suffering? And working and paying bills and changing diapers and all the rest of it. If not, it's worth asking why? Why is our, Why is your life not marked by joy? And merriment and celebration and rejoicing? And there could be a lot of different reasons for that. I, I don't claim to know all the reasons that that might be. But one such reason I think arises in our passage here, one such reason that, that happens maybe often for some of us, it's possible for us to let well-meaning yet misguided duties, shoulds and oughts, to distract from the gift of simple joy in Jesus. It's, it's possible for us to let duties, shoulds and oughts to be more prominent, a list of to dos and shoulds and oughts to be more prominent, In our life in the simplicity of just joy in Jesus as our bridegroom. That's what was going on with the disciples and and Pharisees of the the Pharisees and of John the Baptist here. It's in particular maybe actually not with the Pharisees because as we see Jesus elsewhere will will call out their kind of insincere hypocritical fasting but the disciples of John the Baptist and with others you know these these are these are the good guys we like them. And yet even they are letting their duties of fasting distract them from who's actually standing in front of them, right? And this is so easy for us to do. Friends, let me be the first to confess here. I'm the king of shoulds. Should is a word that comes out of my mouth far too often. I'm a one in the Enneagram and all that. And it's, I just, I often feel the pressure of being good and moral in ways that are unhealthy and not good. And and it's not just me. I've noticed this with a lot of us. It's so easy for us to make Christianity uh, more about a list of shoulds and oughts than it is about Jesus. I should be waking up earlier to pray and read my Bible. I should be reading more good Christian books. I should be praying with my spouse. I should be leading my family and family worship. I should be handling my finances better. I should be sharing the gospel with my neighbors and coworkers. I should be serving and caring for the poor and oppressed. I should know my theology better. I should, I should, I should, and just fill in the blank. And all the while, we're distracted from the simplicity of joy in Jesus as our bridegroom. We miss who's in front of us. I'm not saying that those aren't worthy endeavors. Those are worthy endeavors. But if our Christianity is summed up in a list of shoulds and nots, we're missing out on the essence of Christianity. Our bridegroom has come to redeem us. He has come to give us the joy of our salvation. He has come to give us himself. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy at his right hand. Our pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611 tells us. Set your heart on Jesus, friend. Not a list of duties, however noble and needed they might be. Christianity is not a dutiful yet joyless, numb, drab, boring, guilt-driven, or any otherwise heavy-laden affair. Christianity is joyful because our bridegroom has come. And he has given us himself and salvation in him. He has come to give us joy. But then not only that, our text also tells us that he has come to make things new. And that's what those, those uh, two parables in verses 21 and 22 show us. They may seem kind of odd or confusing at initial glance, but it's, it's helpful to keep in mind here what we mentioned earlier about this question about uh, fasting. It was asked because Jesus and his disciples were viewed as just a kind of renewal or reformational movement within Judaism like that of the Pharisees or John the Baptist. Like he's trying to simply fix up or revitalize the old thing like these other groups that's what initially prompted the question and so jesus goes to the the core misunderstanding that led to the question in the first place and he tells them i'm not come to fix or patch up the old thing i've come to do a new thing come to do a new thing the first parable in in verse 21 no one sows a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So this is fairly simple and straightforward. Uh, You know, some of you may even have experience with this. Uh, Say you have a shirt that gets a hole in it. And the shirt is well-worn and loved. You've had it for a while. It's gone through the wash countless times. I have had several shirts like this. It's already shrunk, right? But then you get a hole in it, and so you go to patch up the hole with a piece of cloth that hasn't been through the wash countless times. It's new. It's, un, it's not pre-shrunk. And so what happens after you sew that patch on and it goes through the wash for the first time? It comes out and it either like shrinks and then just kind of bunches up the shirt and it looks really bad or it just tears and makes a bigger hole and makes it even worse than before. What well, Jesus is saying here, I'm not coming to try to patch up the old Judaism here. I'm not coming to start a new movement in an old religion. That simply won't do. All that will do is simply destroy the old thing and compromise the new. I've come to do an entirely new thing. I've come to toss out the old garment and, with its whole and to bring a completely new garment of praise. He says much the same in the next parable verse 22. Look at what Jesus says there. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Again, the analogy is communicating much the same. He uses the analogy of wine and wine skins. You see, in, in, in Jesus' day, instead of putting wine into glass bottles or, um, like, boxes if you like to party, uh, he, <laughs> you know, they, they put Grape juice, the fruit of the vine, into uh, leather skins from a goat or another animal like that. And when you've got fresh skins, they're, they're smooth and they're uh, elastic and they have the capacity to, to expand during the fermentation process, which you'll need them to because as the, the fruit of the, v- the wine ferments, it turns gaseous and expands in whatever container it's in. That's why wine bottles, you know, when you open up wine bottles, whenever you open them, um, the the wine will kind of pop as it comes out. It's because this this kind of gaseous process has taken place in there, and it's expanded in the container. And and so after the wineskins then have been used, they've already expanded and they've turned kind of crusty on the outside and hard. And therefore, if you put new wine into old wineskins, when the wine begins fermenting and expanding, it damages and bursts the old skins. Well, similarly, Jesus is saying here that the Pharisees and other renewal movements in Judaism, they're merely trying to, to pour new wine into the old used-up wineskins. They're trying to pour new life and vitality into the old categories and customs and covenants. They're merely trying to recover and revitalize the Old Testament Judaism. But Jesus says, I've come Not to do that. I've come to bring new wine and fresh wineskins. Jesus hasn't come to fit in with the old categories and customs. He's come to create a new people through a new covenant with a new birth. And one day he's going to return to consummate this wedding. And he's going to give us new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. And he's going to make all things new. Jesus didn't come to add some amendments and addendums to Judaism. He came to bring total transformation. Now, we need to be careful to not take this principle too far. Because there have been people in church history in times past and even present who have tried to use this principle as a reason to discount and dismiss the Old Testament scriptures as irrelevant or even directly opposed to Christianity. You can see this going all the way back to the second century with a man named Marcion, okay? He's taught that, Marcion taught that the Old Testament scriptures are about a different God, an angry, vengeful, malevolent God who's different, a different being than the forgiving, merciful, uh, man, I'm having trouble saying this word, benevolent God of the New Testament. And because of his beliefs, he... He taught others to <clears throat> dismiss the Old Testament scriptures entirely. We call this heresy, Marcionism, after his name. And sometimes you'll see aspects of Marcionism kind of pop up here and there in the church. Just a few years ago, a popular megachurch pastor in the U.S. started teaching that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And that we should just kind of leave it alone and, and not address it, put it in the past where it belongs. Now, is that what Jesus is teaching here? I would submit to you that it's not. Should we, should we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? Not at all. Jesus very clearly taught elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures, but to fulfill and complete them. He, he came to fulfill them by fulfilling the promises that they contained. And so we shouldn't dismiss or discount or unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament scriptures. We worship the same God, and this is a continuation of the same story, even though... We live on the fulfillment side of the promised fulfillment parts of the story. And at the same time, we ought to recognize and remember that we've entered into a new chapter of this same story. We don't dismiss or detach from the Old Testament. We should also never downplay the newness of the new covenant and the new era that Christ has ushered in through his life, death, and resurrection. In this new covenant, this new era, God's people are not a a geopolitical community bound together through civil and ceremonial laws. Instead, we are a community of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue bound together through the lordship and law of Christ. We're no longer bound to, to laws concerning sacrifices and temples and priesthoods, but now Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our temple, the, the person in place in whom we meet with God. He's the one who is the presence of God for us. He's the one who mediates the presence of God for us. He's the one who is our forgiveness of sins in and through himself. He didn't come to simply patch up and pour new life into the old customs and categories. He came to complete them and fulfill them in himself and to usher in a new era wherein he makes us and eventually all things new. And so because of this, this is one reason that we're opposed to simply tacking Jesus on to old Judaism. And I, I bring this up, bring it up very briefly, because several of you have approached me recently, actually, in the past few months, because you have family or, or loved ones who are diving deep into groups and forms of Christianity, which are seeking to, to more or less Judaize Christianity in the name of, of reconnecting Christianity with its Jewish roots. It's not entirely uncommon in certain circles to see people seeking to, to merge Christianity in Judaism or seeking to tack Jesus on to Old Testament Jewish religion. Jesus insists here that we not do that. He insists on being in his own class and category. He declares that he has come to change everything in regards to the Old Covenant. We ought never seek to tack Jesus on to Old Testament religion. But then it's not just people out there and our extended families or friends or loved ones who seek to tack Jesus on to another religion or ideology or worldview, if we're honest in our most lucid moments, recognize that we can tend to do this too. Maybe it's not Judaism. Instead, we might seek to merge Jesus with our particular brand of partisan politics. Now, We, we, we try to turn Jesus into a mascot for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the, the Libertarian Party. But friends, Jesus is not a mascot for our partisan politics and ideologies. We might try to tack Jesus onto the American dream, where our, 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 our lives revolve around work and career ambitions and family, where we prioritize over everything house and, and juniors baseball and princesses soccer, and, and we're preparing our kids to, uh, you know, their college, for their colleges or their careers one day, and we're more concerned with that than we are passing along the good news of Jesus Christ to them. All while we sprinkle in enough Jesus into our lives to to ease our consciences and to provide fire insurance for us. Friends, Jesus refuses to be tacked on to the American dream. He refuses. Or increasingly common is trying to merge Jesus with with expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is is a way of outlook and living wherein you you seek to create your own identity, your own identity, and seek to determine uh, your own terms of existence. And you put uh, your own unique self-realization and self-actualization on the highest plane without any external authorities or molds. In other words, it's summed up in a lot of the phrases of expressive individualism, you do you. You follow your heart. You just be yourself. Be true to yourself. That's expressive individualism. And it's the predominant cultural narrative in our moment. You see it everywhere. It's embedded into all forms of cultural expression, from Disney movies to, like, your your average self-help book. It's so embedded into our culture That we're all increasingly, even if unwittingly, influenced and shaped, informed by it. Some have even said that we're all expressive individualists now, whether we realize it or not. And so, it's extremely easy for us to just try to tack Jesus on to this way of living, insofar as he fits with with whatever is convenient or whatever uh, identity that we're seeking to construct for ourselves. We can treat Christianity as a, as a kind of buffet of sorts, kind of taking the things that we like and that are convenient and, and leaving the rest, as if Christianity is a, a Spotify playlist you're creating or a, a Chipotle burrito or something like that. and kind of build whatever works for us and fits our preferences. We may like the stuff, about caring for the poor. We may like the comfort that we have and the good news of forgiveness, and yet we don't like the sexual ethics. We don't like what Jesus had to say about money. We don't like what the New Testament has to say about hell. And so we pick and choose what we like and we discard what we don't like. And yet, my friends, Jesus refuses to be tacked on to any religion any ideology, any worldview, he refuses to be tacked on to any identity that we might construct for ourselves that isn't first and foremost based on him and his redeeming love. To try to tack him on to anything else is like trying to put an unshrunk cloth on a pre-shrunk shirt or pouring new wine into old wineskins. Jesus didn't come to do that. He came to bring total transformation. He came to change everything, and all because he came to be our everything. And so he's saying here, instead of trying to merely tack him on, or to toss out the old garments and wineskins of American dream, politics as religion, expressive individualism, or whatever else, and replace it with full 200-proof Jesus religion. Some of you have been around for a while. You've heard me use this illustration before, and this probably won't be the last time that I use it, to be frank. And yet it fits with how we're trying to apply this passage here this morning. It's from Ray Ortland. It's a wonderful illustration. where He's calling us to wholehearted, fully submitted discipleship to Jesus. Listen to what he said. He said, you and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. Close your eyes and picture this. There's a boardroom in every heart, the big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, whiteboard. A committee is sitting around the table. And around this table, there's a social self, a private self, there's the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and there's others. The committee is arguing, debating, and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can it come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. Now, we tell ourselves that we're this way because we have so many responsibilities, but the truth is we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. That kind of person can follow Jesus in either of two ways. One way is to invite him on to the committee, give him a vote too. That is to say you're trying to tack him on, sew him on like an unshrunk cloth, to a pre-shrunk garment, trying to pour him like new wine into old wineskins. But then he just becomes one more complication. The other way to follow Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee. Fire every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. I'm your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me, completely out with the old and in with the new. Friends, if we seek, if we see Jesus right, It's just something to tack on to our lives as they are currently, similar to how the Pharisees saw him, just another renewal movement in the same old framework, then he'll always just be another complication. we will always be half-hearted, hesitant, joyless, unfree, divided, unfocused. And yet if we fire the committee, we receive a whole new garment New wine and fresh wineskins, refusing to tack him on, but firing the whole committee and giving ourselves wholly over to him, everything changes. We will experience the joy that he came to bring. We will experience the total transformation he promised because he came to give us joy. He came to make things new. He came to change everything. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that Jesus has come to change everything. We give you thanks that he has come to be our bridegroom and to give us unceasing, forever joy. We give you thanks that he has come to do away with the old and to bring the new and with it, entire transformation, making us into a new people through a new covenant, with a new birth. And we look forward to the day when he comes to give us new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth and to make all things new. Help us to joyfully anticipate that day and to live in light of it always. And help us to be a sign and a foretaste as a community of it now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.